started last week, we understood, and we want to make sure we remember this, that the order of this is important. We get to hear, and we get to see some extremely important things here in chapter 19 that must be understood and comprehended before we get to the law. In fact, it's safe to say that if you don't understand chapter 19, or if you skip chapter 19 and just go right to chapter 20, then, um, then you're going to miss the understanding of what chapter 20 is. You're going to misapply chapter 10, 20. So chapter 19, as we talked about last week, in particular highlights the grace of God to save his people. I brought you out of Egypt. I bore you on eagle's wings. This is the grace of God that this covenant is built upon the salvation of God that came before them. Right? The covenant did not come to them while they were still in Egypt. It's not like, okay, if you do these things, if you show yourself worthy, then I'll save you. But until then, I'm leaving you here. See how order is important? Because out of it now, we see that the grace of God has come. The grace of God has been given to them in the salvation of his people, and then now he is beginning to bring the covenant to them, as we will see that in chapter 20. We see as well, verses 5 through 6, the, the summary, right, of the kind of relationship that they are going to have with the Lord their God. We talked about this last week, that that every relationship has a responsibility. That their relationship with, with God, they have a responsibility to it, to be obedient to his covenant. So the relationship with God's people, God is grounding it in grace. He's grounding it in his salvation, but then his grace is expressed through their obedience in him. A treasured possession, the kingdom of truth. Holy Let's look to chapter 19, and let's read starting in verse 7, and we'll go to verse 15. So Moses came and called the elders of the people and set before them all these words that the Lord commanded them, commanded him. All the people answered together and said, all that the Lord has spoken we will do. And Moses reported the words of the people to the Lord. And the Lord said to Moses, Behold, I am coming to you in a thick cloud, that the people may hear when I speak with you, and may also believe you forever. When Moses told the words of the people to the Lord, the Lord said to Moses, Go to the people and consecrate them today and tomorrow, and let them wash their garments, and be ready for the third day. For on the third day the Lord will come down on Mount Sinai, in the sight of all people. And you shall set limits for all the people all around saying, take care not to go into the not to go up into the mountain or touch the edge of it. Whoever touches the mountain shall be put to death. No hand shall touch him, but he shall be stoned or shot, whether beast or man, none he shall not live. When the trumpet sounds a long blast, they shall come up to the mountain. And Moses went down from the mountain to the people and consecrated the people. And they washed their garments. And he said to the people, Be ready for the third day. Do not go near a woman. And this is the word of the Lord. And may his Holy Spirit move in our hearts to hear and to see his holy and inspired inerrant word for his glory and our joy. Amen. And so what we have here is the continuation of the first event that took place on the mountain that I just described to you before we read our text. Moses goes up to the mountain, he hears the word of the Lord, the grace of God, and he brings it back down to the people. You see that in verse 7. Moses comes down the mountain and he calls all the elders together. The elders are the, the representatives of the people and he tells them the words of God, the word of God. Which, by the way, these words were not passive. They were words that demand a response from the people of God. Which, by the way, Moses, he, you know, he came down the mountain there in verse 7, but again, we just read that he's going to go back up the mountain again. 
and then he's going to come right back down again. That's, that's twice now in, in chapter 19. And we're going to see one more of him ascending and descending next week. That's, that's roughly uh, uh, taking kind of the average of the mountains in that area. That's roughly 2,000 feet of elevation. Right? 2,000 in descent. That's three to, that could be three to four miles depending on the terrain. most definitely not holy. And so if the, the Lord God comes down to them, they better be ready. They better be prepared. They better know what it means to be ready to meet God and to hear the Word of God and for the presence of God to come in their midst. Do you ever have, do you ever have guests in your home? Do you ever have guests in your home? you have one time or another guests can be anyone they can be family they can be friends co-workers church members sometimes it's um, your children's friends that come over or have come over and depending on who comes over and why they come over and when they come over and how they come over will generally um, will generally tell you the kind of hospitality you're going to offer them. We enjoy having guests in our home. We've had many of y'all in, in our home, and we plan to, to do more. And sometimes it's a, a formal dinner, like Christmas dinner. Sometimes it's as informal as a last-minute drop-in, and you just kind of get what's left from the, the Robert H. Sometimes isn't very much, but most times isn't that for one more mouth. We enjoy having guests in our home. But if you have someone that's really important that comes over, right? Someone that's really important that, that, that comes over, that's coming by, someone that you, or someone that you just dearly, dearly love, that can change how you prepare your home or prepare your yourself or, or how you... Uh, you, you clean up how you set the table, how you prepare for something, or how you prepare for someone says a lot about the care and love and respect for that guest. Think about your preparation this morning. This is no ordinary morning. You're, you're not going to school. You're not going to, to work. You're not going to hang out at the beach or something like that. This is no ordinary morning, but today is the Lord's Day. We gather on the Lord's Day as God's people, as the church. Certainly should Sunday morning. Sunday gatherings with the church should it require some sort of preparation. I know I have been thinking and praying and preparing for this Sunday morning and honestly ever since the, the end of our service last Sunday and I've been planning these services weeks in advance and so I know it's different for me and I'm supposed to have things planned out and I don't care. Our men who come up here and lead us in prayer and reading they often prepare themselves to pray and to leave throughout the week. They prepare to leave. Maybe you prepare yourself for 
Sunday morning gatherings by, by reading the text that we are to that we are preaching on on Sunday. You pray for me, and you pray for another elder or someone else who is preaching that Sunday. Praise God, please continue to do so. Maybe you you spend time throughout the week praying for your your fellow brothers and sisters that that come to church, that not just for their their everyday needs or their uh, or maybe some greater need that they may have going on in their life, but you pray for them that the word of God would increase in their life and their faith would increase in their life. Praise God, continue to do that. Do you use the, the email that I send out every Friday with the sermon text and title? Do you listen to the songs maybe that, that we're going to sing? Because I send that in the email to prepare yourself for congregational singing. I think many of you do. Do you prepare Saturday to give yourself and your family plenty of rest and preparation beforehand to get things ready and clothes and shoes and breakfast and sometimes when you have the gathering meal, maybe prepare for that on Saturday. But if you have enough time to get up and, and come to church, on, come gather with the church on time and, and not be in such a rush. Do you, do you look forward to our gathering together? Do you prepare yourself or is this to you, is this just a routine or just even a mundane day? Are Sundays just something that you do because it's Sunday? If we look forward to something, then we anticipate. We prepare. Now, I, I want you to hear me out that I, I'm not saying this in some legalistic way that each of you need to prepare in some certain way externally to be holy, but what I am saying is that if we gather together on the Lord's day, no ordinary day, that, and we're going to be under the preaching of the Word of God, and the Holy Spirit is with us, and He is guiding us, He is indwelt in us, and God's Word is being proclaimed, then, then what we do is not routine. Maybe just the order of service may be somewhat routine, but this is not routine, this is not ordinary, nor should it be mundane. It's worthy of our thoughts. It's worthy of our mind. It's worthy of our, of our hearts and our bodies to, to prepare ourselves to gather with one another. In our text this morning, God's people are told to prepare. They are told to prepare for the presence of God and for the receiving of the word of God. And I believe that this has a profound effect, not only for Israel, but how we think about our gatherings together as the church. And the first thing that I want us to say, I want to say for us to anticipate, to prepare, is that we do so by faith. We do so by faith. One of the, 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 the basic building blocks of Christianity is faith. We come to Christ faith alone. Moses, he, he goes to the people, he tells them the word of God in verses 3 through 6, tells them what God says, the grace of, his, of salvation, that here are going to be the treasured possession of the obedient, and be blessed by the Lord. And the people say in response there, all that the Lord has spoken, we will do. Now this response to me, as I was reading and studying, it just kind of comes as a shock. And this is why it's a shocker to me. Not because it's the, it's the right answer. It is the right thing to say. We'll get to that in just a second. But it's a shocker to me because of the previous chapters. This doesn't sound like Israel before. Israel before was, was complaining. They were grumbling. They were doubting. They were giving into seemingly any kind of fear that could come their way. They failed every test that the Lord set before them in the wilderness. I mean, talk about little to no faith at all. But now, here at the mountain of God, they say, receiving the word of God, they say, all that the Lord says we will do. We can, we can doubt their sincerity now based on the fact that, well, they haven't heard God's word yet. They haven't heard what the Lord was going to ask of them. Certainly we can doubt their, their sincerity and their faith there. We can also doubt them based upon the historically we know about Israel that they are constantly failing 
and sinning before the Lord. A, a massive one happens in, in, in Exodus chapter 32 with the, the, the fashioning of the golden calf and then working with it and calling that Yahweh, calling that God. But here, at this moment, before the full covenant is given, Israel embraces the Lord's word and God's promise. They acknowledge the Lord's authority, His lordship over Him, His love, His blessings that are being offered to them if they just trust and believe and, and follow Him. And listen, their faith is weak. Their faith is beleaguered. It's uninformed. It's ignorant, it's small, it's unaware of their own inability to keep the law of God. But they still believe here by faith. And as much as we may, may doubt or see how small as it was and their inability to keep the law, we get all that. Would any of us say that their response here was incorrect? Would there be a better response here? small and bleared. It is a correct response. And the reason is, is because faith is always the right response to the Word of God. And we see the same truth in the New Testament. The word, word faith is used over 300 times in the New Testament. And Jesus tells us that, that, the, the, that faith has Small as a mustard seed can do what? Can move mountains. Romans chapter 5, verse 1 says, Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have what? Peace with God. Through our Lord Jesus Christ. Faith is how we are justified. Faith is how we are saved and in Christ alone, in His work, not our own. Essentially, as, again, as small and beleaguered as that may be, essentially, Israel is believing what? And it was by God's grace that saved them. That's what his foundation Ephesians 2, chapter 8. For by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not of your own doing. This is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. Faith is a gift. It is a gift of grace by God for our salvation. It is not of our doing, but it is a, it is a gift of His grace. We live then now as Christians each and every day following the Lord in obedience to His Word. Why? Because, brothers and sisters, we sang it this morning. Because we walk by faith and not by Galatians 2.20, I think it was even up on the screen this morning, that I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives within me. And the life I now live in the flesh, right? The life that I now live in the flesh, I live by what? Faith. Not sight. Faith. Faith in what? The, the generic faith that Americans like to use? No, it's faith in the Son of God, in Jesus Christ. Because He's the one who loved me and gave Himself for me. Galatians 2.20. And we can do all of this. We, 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 can, we can do this all day. Like I, like I said, 300 verses on faith. And that's not even including the ones that say belief or, or believe, which is generally the same word to do it. We can be here all day talking about this. The point is this, is that, that faith is, is not only what was required and necessary for salvation because of the grace of God, but we see faith very particularly given here and seen in a small way in the Old Testament here in the Old Covenant. Faith is always rooted in the saving work of God. And we exercise then faith daily in the Son of God by following the Word of God in obedience. In Matthew's Gospel, there are 
several confessions by people, certain people, maybe not several, but a few, certain people that confess that Jesus is Lord. Peter does it. Demons that do it. Sinners, prostitutes that confess Jesus is Lord. Sinners, tax collectors, and the centurion that he hung on the cross. But the but that confession doesn't really come clear on what it actually really means, the depth of what it really means for the disciples until after the resurrection. Jesus makes it clear at the end. And he says it like this in Matthew 28, verse 18. He says, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. That's what Jesus is Lord means. And when you confess that, that's what that means. That means he is supreme over all. There is none higher. There is none greater. All will bow the knee and worship and confess that Jesus is Lord. He is sovereignly ruling over the universe and he is sustaining. He is sustaining all things. And we as his creation, one way or another, we are under his authority. And when we confess that Jesus is Lord, we are under his hand and we are at his disposal. Abraham Kuyper famously said, there is not a square inch in the whole domain of our human existence over which Christ, who is sovereign over all, does not cry out, Mine! To all of us who believe, all of those who are in Christ, who have confessed Jesus Christ as Lord and believed by faith, this is very much wonderful news. To the world, it is a stumbling block. To those who have been saved and to those who are being saved, this is, this is wonderful news. This is comforting. This, it is settling to know that, that He is our King and that our King is sovereign over this fallen world that he is sovereign over our fallen flesh and our weak lives. And I say all of that to you because confessing that and believing that and, and that settling that takes place and that growth that takes place and that sanctification that takes place and confessing that Jesus Christ is Lord is to tell you that, that faith does that. Faith does that. But this certain confession and knowing that, and even this particular faith, doesn't tell us what we must do. But Jesus shows us what to do. And in Luke's gospel, after his resurrection, what does Jesus do? But he goes out and he shows the people the word of God. He shows them the Word of God and He shows how the Word of God is being fulfilled by, by Him. You see, we cannot just make a profession. Life is not one of, the, the salvation is not just about making a profession of faith of some kind, Jesus is Lord, and then going out and living however we want. Faith doesn't leave us in the place of sin but it leads us to repentance and obedience to the Word of God. And this is what Jesus does after He is resurrected. He shows us that to live by faith and believe that Jesus is Lord, that there is an irreparable link with His revelation. And why? Well, we hear later in the New Testament that faith comes from here. And here it comes from the word. Which why, brothers and sisters, I think this is an all-important point. Because not only are they responding by faith, but God is condescending to his people not only to give him the word that he already gave him, but to do what? To give him the word. Obedience comes by faith because God has spoken. And the first preparation for us is to do. Is, to, is that we are to do and prepare by faith. Because 
faith not only is for our salvation, but the continuing in that faith and the exercise of that right faith produces obedience. And that obedience, the knowledge of the obedience, comes from the word. And so that brings us to the second point that I want us to see this morning, which gets us to the heart of the text, right? That, that helps us anticipate and to, and to prepare is that we must be consecrated. Give me a second and take a drink. We must be consecrated. Consecrated and holy. The word holy comes from the same root word. It means to be set apart, to be holy. It means to be it means to be set apart, uh, but, but to be devoted to something. You're set apart to be devoted. So these people are being consecrated to be set apart, to be made holy, to be devoted to the Lord God. And the real question is why? Why do they need to be consecrated? Haven't they already believed in faith to follow isn't faith enough? And yes, the answer to that question is yes, faith is enough, but the problem is in verse 9. As we talked about a little bit earlier in verse 9, where God says, I'm going to come to you in a thick cloud. That's problem number one. The second problem is that the people may hear when I speak with you and that they may believe. Now, these are certainly good things. God's condescending. He's coming to, uh, his, to, to his people. This is God's coming to his people, an an amazing picture of what we understand. But there also is a great problem here. That God coming to them in their presence, God's going to speak to them and give them his word that they may actually hear God's condescending. He's coming down in the form of a thick cloud. We're going to talk more about that next week. But the reason why he's coming down to them in this particular thick cloud is because his holiness would kill them. No one can look upon the face of God and stand and live. And so God concealing himself in the thick cloud is actually an act of mercy. You're dirty, you're sinners. This would, this would kill you. But there's also a sign, right? The sign is that God is here, right? The sign of the cloud is God's, God's presence. And so if God comes close to them, the closer we come to God, and it's the same thing with us, the closer that we grow in Christ, the more we become more and more in Christ, and we grow in Christ, we grow in His Word, and we're disciples and all of that, what you realize more and more is not how great you are, but you realize how much more of a sinner you are, and how much more of a dependence upon His grace and His forgiveness is what you need. The closer God comes to us, the more we realize how much we are in a sinner and how much we need grace and the forgiveness of God. We need to be cleansed. And mercifully, God tells them how they should prepare for themselves. And so essentially, gives giving three ways in which they are to consecrate themselves. The first he says in verse 10, go wash your clothes, go wash your garments. There is, there's more here than your clothes are dirty. There's more here than just hygiene or or style. Now, I'm sure they had some pretty dirty clothes. But remember the clothes that they brought out of Egypt, too. They had clothes that they brought out of Egypt. They had some dirty clothes. They were journeying in the wilderness. They're coming out of slavery. They live in a desert. I'm not from the desert, but I've been to a, somewhat of a deserty area, and everything's dirty, everything's sandy all the time. That's my right? Somewhat, right? I mean, sand can be everywhere. And so it's more than just dirty clothes, however. And so why wash their clothes? And here's the reason. It's because symbolically, the state of their clothing was to show them something. The state of their clothing was to show them something. Your clothes are dirty. Why? Because you came out of sand. Because you came out of Because they are dirty, because it points to your sinfulness. And that sinfulness, that dirt that's all around them and in their clothes, that's permeating their clothes. It's this this sinfulness that that points back to the curse, right? In Genesis 3. 
that sin produces what? Death. And their dirty clothes are coming out of this, out of slavery and out of sin. There is still the sense of death on them. And what does death do? If you read or later in the law, you'll realize that the death, in contact with death, does what? It defiles them. They are defiled with the sense of the death of their sin. God is holy. We are not. God is clean. We are not. And before we can come into the presence of God, we need to be cleansed from our defilement of death. The dirty clothes of who you once were. No more slavery. Israel put on what is new. This is a, 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 a literal picture of the state of their own nature and what God's intent is to do. And the, the changing of their clothes from something that is dirty and stained and, and nasty into something that is clean is to show to them the intent of who they are supposed to be. The intent of who they are supposed to be. Let me put it like this. If you were to walk um, downtown Savannah and you come up to one of those beautiful squares with the oak hammocks and things like that, and, and there just so happens to be a wedding taking place. And you see the woman wearing, you see a woman wearing the white dress. And you go up and you ask her, why are you wearing a wedding dress like a bride? Her reply would be, because I'm the bride and I'm getting married to them. Clothes are representative. And they reveal and show the intent of the wearer. And so these clothes of theirs are to be symbolic to tell them that they are putting off of the old and taking on of the new. And this certainly is the same language of the New Testament. Where Paul tells us, put off the old Literally, take off those clothes. Put on the new clothes in the life of Second, verse 11, tells them to be ready on the third day. And this is to give them not only a time for, for preparation, right, to prepare themselves, right, the amount of time. This is how long you have to clean, to clean your clothes and be ready to be cleansed. But also it is a time of reflection and focus. That these three days to focus and to prepare for what I have just said to you and what is about to come. Right? He has told them, I am coming down to you. Right? That is something to think about, to, to, to meditate on, to, con to consider that God is coming. He told them that I am going to speak in such a way that you, the people of God, you are going to hear my voice. The audible voice of of God. That is something to think about and reflect upon. They're going to receive His Word. They're going to receive His covenant and what it means. Their, their lives are about to completely change. This was a time, these three days, was to be one of anticipation. Anticipation is a, is a good thing often. It stirs good desires and that, that we are looking forward to something that is, that is good. But also here, don't don't let third day or the, the, the third day pass you by too quickly. Isn't that significant for us? The third day? Isn't that significant for us that, that not just here but other places in Scripture, but namely the resurrection? That on the third day, Jesus said, I will rise again. Preparation, reflection, and anticipation are all built into this event just like us every Sunday. It's all built into every Sunday and every week, right? Because Saturday, the week ends. And in some sense, in some way, we feel sort of a, of a, of this, of a despair of living in a fallen world because it's been a long week and maybe there's even a tinge of disappointment that Jesus still has not come back yet. But we gather on the Lord's day the last day, the, I mean the first day of the week. Why? To remember of the hope that came on that third day, the resurrection of our Savior, Jesus Christ. 
when we gather to remember, to be our hope to be renewed because of the resurrection. And we continue to do so week in and week out until Christ comes back. Third day. Be ready. And then third, verses 12 through 13, boundaries are set. They're set around the mountain, and these you can read that these boundaries have severe consequences to anyone who would come and touch the mountain. These, these are extremely important rules here, right? I would say so. If someone says, if, if, you, if you do this, you will die. You might not want to do it, right? There's, there's morons out there that still do it, and they die. And this is a very explicit, important instruction, right? Do not touch the mountain. And the reason why is because the presence of God is descending upon the mountain. The mountain will become the temple. The mountain will become the tabernacle. Who could enter the Holy of Holies of the tabernacle or the temple? But only one priest, once a year, that is appointed, very particular. But if you went in there otherwise, you would die. And the same is here in Mount Sinai, the presence of God is holy. And again, a reminder that we are not holy. His presence is holy. Our presence is holy. And His presence on the mountain is that He makes it holy ground. And so what this does for us, I think this very, very important point, is not to try to highlight, oh, God's killing people willy-nilly. No. God is holy, and you are not. And that that is the fact of our position before the Lord if we are out of if we are not in Christ. That we are unworthy to approach God on our own terms and to do so in a manner that is not prescribed by Him. And that has dire consequences. Yeah. Now if you look down to verse 15, there is a bonus way to consecrate themselves. Moses says, do not go near a woman. You all know what what they're talking about there. So why why is such a prohibition there given? Why why a prohibition of of sexual relations as a way to prepare themselves? Particularly in our modern culture, we see that such prohibition as barbaric and hateful as sex and sexuality and all that they would like it to be has become their idol, their god, and their form of Gnosticism that they have not created but has been handed down by the evil one. But the Apostle Paul gives the same prohibition, in a sense. He has the same thing in mind in 1 Corinthians chapter 7, verse 5. He's talking to married couples and he says, do not deprive one another. He's speaking of sex. And why? Why not deprive one another? Why? Because it is God's good design for intimacy in marriage between a man and a woman. But then he goes on to say, and this is Paul, that only abstain from a relation if agreed upon together for a limited amount of time so that you could devote yourselves to Christ. Marriage and sex is God's good idea and design. We did not come up with that, despite what our culture thinks today. They're very much confused at best and more like the sea. Sex was given to man before the fall. Sex within marriage is good. So Paul and Moses are not saying that it is sinful and that sexual relations make you unclean within the marriage covenant. Rather, he is saying from the awareness that in a true and happy marriage, intimacy involves a, the total self-absorption of each other. And sex in particular, those physical relations, in marriage is its deepest emotional delight and commitment known on earth. And the restriction for the consecration in this area is important because God's desire, the Lord's desire, is for people's hearts, minds, and bodies, and souls to be holy. 
that their full attention would be given to the hearing of the law and the word of God. The whole point of all of these consecrating themselves was not only for their protection from the holiness of God because we are unholy and need to be cleansed and we need to be made new. We need new minds, we need new bodies and spirit. We'll talk more about that in a moment. But, but it was to prepare them for the presence of God and for the word of God. Hear me on this. These things that, he is, that we, we just read, these, these four things, they're not necessarily prescriptions for us to gather as a church. Yes, as a suggestion, and a love for everyone, if you are able, please wear clean clothes. Like, not, not, you know, not, not going to be shunned, but we'll make sure that you're washing your dark, so we're going to whatnot. You can dress up, you can wear a suit and tie on Sundays if you want, but there is no command in Scripture to do so. Remember what Jesus said. Listen to this. This is so important. Remember what Jesus said. That you could clean the outside of the cup and the plate as much as you want. But what matters is the attitude of the heart. What matters is the heart. Because in the heart, that is what defiles you. Our preparation then, our preparation then for each other as we prepare, right? Each of us prepare for Sunday mornings, wherever it may look like. It's all going to manifest itself in different ways. But coming before the Lord, in any way, remember that coming before the Lord is a serious business. And I think that if we are in the presence of God, and if we have come to hear the word of God, then brothers and sisters, I think each week and anticipation and preparation, I think we should carefully prepare ourselves. But in the ultimate matter, in the ultimate things of really being able to clean ourselves, we cannot do that. And it doesn't matter what you wear and how nice you dress yourself up or not, or the things that you abstain from or not, you cannot consecrate yourself. And that brings us to our third point of our great need. How then are we to be consecrated? How then are we to be cleansed? That no matter what you do, you cannot clean yourself. You, Little boys wearing boots. I'm just going to do that. You, you can't consecrate yourself. You can't straighten out your own life. There's nothing that you can do that can bring yourself closer to the Lord. To be ready, to be prepared, we need far more than clean clothes. We need far more than, than meditation and reflection or abstaining from marital relations. We need a mediator. We need a mediator, a mediator that is a, a go-between, right? They're, they're, they go between, the inter, intermediary, right? They're in between. Someone you, who bridges a gap between two parties who are at a distance. Usually they're used as people who are, who are having issues with one another, right? Like uh, sometimes you know, judges are sometimes considered intermediaries, right? Or some other, they want to solve the situation. One goes here, discuss, and then they go back over. Some kind of representative. They go the distance between the two. God gives Israel a mediator. And that mediator is Moses. And Moses if throughout the passage is confirmed to be that mediator, right? He's the one that's doing the heavy lifting of walking up and down the mountain, right? As this 80-year-old man walking up and down back and forth, right? Verse 9, right? God confirms the role of Moses as a mediator to the people. In verse 12, then he confirms it to Moses. Right? And then in verses 14 and 15, Moses then shows explicitly that he is their mediator. He goes back down to them and he begins the work of telling them how to be consecrated and make sure it gets done as he gives God's word to them. So Moses is their mediator. Right? So the, the great distance of the mountain proves that there is a separation. There is a, a distance between the people of God and the Lord God themselves. But most importantly, the greatest separation is not distance, it's not height. The great separation between us, most importantly, is, what in the one, is the one that we were just talking about. And that is the spiritual separation. Again, God is holy. We are defiled with sin, which not only makes us unclean, but also unable to come to Him. 
If you try to come to him, you're going to touch the mountain and you're going to die. We need a mediator. Moses was that, that mediator to, to his people, right? And he did his best. He communicated God's word. He prepared them for the presence of the Lord. We see that he does all that. Moses was a good mediator. But Moses is not the best mediator. Because the people would fail to keep their covenant. Moses could not save them. We need a better mediator. We need a better mediator. And we also need a better covenant. We need someone who could cleanse us from our sin, from the inside out, to consecrate our hearts. And the obvious answer to this question about the scriptures as you may know that our great mediator is Hebrews chapter 8, verse 6 says, Christ has obtained a ministry that is as much more excellent than the old, but the covenant he mediates is better, since it is enacted on better times. Jesus proved to be the better mediator over a better covenant, the covenant in which we now live in and under. And the reason why he proves to be a better mediator with better promises is because he is God incarnate. Meaning, he is God who took on flesh. He came. God came and dwelt among men. And what did he do? The same as what God promised he was going to do there in Exodus 19. Jesus came. The presence of God. Jesus wasn't veiled in a thick cloud over a mountain. He wasn't veiled in such a way that he could not even be touched. But that those that did touch him, as you remember, were healed. The reason is because he is the God man. He came and he was the better mediator between God and man. He became our substitutionary atonement on the cross so that by his sacrifice, all who believe by faith in him alone may be made holy once for all. That's Hebrews 10, 24. Or 10, 10, 10, excuse me. This means the problem of sin, that great distance, right? The, the consecration that we can't do. No matter how much we try to clean ourselves up and wear certain clothes and do certain things, has been solved. This distance has been, has been brought together between because God has become man and that distance has been closed because of the person and work of Christ because he came to us. He came down the mountain to us with his presence and with his words. Again, you have no ability to consecrate yourself, but to all of those who place their faith in that mediator, Jesus Christ, will be made holy and given the righteousness of Christ. Listen to this from Hebrews chapter 12, verse 18. For you have not come to what may be touched, a blazing fire and darkness and gloom and tempest and the sound of a trumpet and a voice whose words may be hearers beg that no further messages may be spoken to them. For they could not endure it, endure the order that was given. If even a beast touches the mountain, it shall be stoned. This is the scene there at Mount Sinai that, that we are being described here. This is the scene, great and glorious. But as he says in the beginning, this is not the scene that you came to for your salvation. This is not the mountain that you came to for your salvation. That's not our experience. He continues, verse 21, Indeed, so terrifying was the sight that Moses said, I tremble with fear. But you, but you have come to Mount Zion, to the city of the living God. So we haven't come to Mount Sinai. We come to Mount Zion, to Christ, to his heavenly kingdom, to heavenly Jerusalem, and to innumerable angels and festal gatherings, and to the assemblies of the firstborn who are rolled in heaven, and to God, and to the judge of all, and to the spirits of the righteous made perfect. Look at the scene that's being that's being described for all of those who come to who come to Christ. 
glorious and wonderful, magnificent, not in fear of death, but by grace. You see the difference? The greater revelation. Why? Because, verse 24, because to Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant, and to the sprinkled blood that speaks a better word than the blood. Through Christ, our mediator, you have been saved by grace, by the grace of God, through the blood of Jesus Christ, and he has united you into him. He has given you new clothes and new righteousness that is from him. He has given you a new heart that will desire to worship, desires for him, and desires to treasure him and to know Him, and to glow in Him. And there's so many facets of that that we can, we can talk about in that, right? The increasing of, of faith, and the desire to be gathered with the, the church and the saints. By word of application, I have to say to each and every one of you here, do you embrace and trust in that medium? Or are you looking to your own mediation? What you've accomplished and what you can do are you still running on that treadmill that is only giving you exhaustion, but you have gone nowhere? Do you embrace and trust that medium? Because he is the only one who can take you and really prepare you, and really consecrate you, and bring you into the presence. And the only one who can give you faith to believe and to consecrate is this. The only one who can make you holy and give you his righteousness is this medium. And I think that ultimately, underneath this passage, what we see is Moses is reminding us to that about That it is Christ. And that is what the word of God is showing us in the story of Israel from his church at the mountain to look to Christ. When we gather on Sunday, these are no ordinary days. Like that urge in some cases. It is the day we celebrate and remember and reflect on the resurrection of Jesus. Brothers and sisters, each week is to anticipate, each week we are to anticipate and to prepare our minds, our bodies, and our souls in the presence and the word of God by faith. But remember this, that there is one God and there is one mediator between God and man, the man Christ. He gave himself as a ransom for all which is the testimony given at the proper time. He is our king. He is our Lord. He is our faith. And our leader. Keep your eyes on him. Keep your eyes on the word of God that he is to be. And know him. And all of God's people.